Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, students at CCSU are taking a semester-long look at race and inequality in a project called Bridging the Gap, a Dream Deferred. We'll hear from some of the students about their ideas coming up. But first, Marco Jakian, Governor Malloy's former chief of staff, was chosen to take charge of the state's embattled public college system this past summer. Four years after a 2011 consolidation combined Connecticut's four regional state universities, 12 community colleges, and the online Charter Oak State College. The initial plan was meant to lower administrative costs and make it easier for students to transfer credits between the state's community and four-year colleges. It's not exactly what has happened, though. Administrative costs rose during the embattled tenures of the system's first two presidents, and four years later, it's still too difficult to transfer credits. Now, a recent proposal put forth by the administration has provoked fierce opposition from faculty and staff members upset over demands for givebacks that they say are in the, quote, true spirit of Scott Walker, the Wisconsin governor known for his disdain of unions. With deficits in our state budget looming for years to come, though, administrators are looking to make some hard choices about how to pay the bills. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I should say that in a few weeks, we'll be speaking to faculty members about some of their concerns about plans put forward by the state. I'll also note that I am not a faculty member at Central Connecticut State University, although I did hold a faculty appointment there for a few years. I'm not currently employed by the uh, Connecticut State University system, so it puts me in a good position to talk to Marco Jakian, who is the president of Connecticut uh, State Colleges and University System. And uh, I want to thank you to, uh, to uh, I want to thank you for coming in and join uh, joining the program here. Welcome to where we live. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. So first of all, let's just talk about um, this entire consolidation. Um, back in 2011, you were Governor Malloy's chief of staff. In 2011, actually, I was the deputy budget secretary at so that time. You, you were, that's right. You were working in the administration. My apologies. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And uh, was one of the lead negotiators on this consolidation proposal. So what at the time did you think needed to happen to, well, to, I, to put this together? I think, I think exactly what you said in your opening. It was meant to create a true system that made it easier for students to transfer in and out and from a two-year to a four-year institution and also to reduce administrative costs to achieve efficiencies in places where they could be achieved without destroying the autonomy of each institution or each individual constituent unit. And that just has not happened. Why hasn't it happened? Well, I think for a couple of reasons. I think um, there have been many uh, misstarts since the system first was put into place. I think there were a lot of controversies around my predecessors that had really nothing to do with the consolidation but with, you know, with expenses and salaries and, and uh, in the case of my uh, – the, the Dr. Gray – um, just, you know, not a lot of confidence from faculty members and administrators across the state that he was the right fit for the job. And so I entered this arena with a fresh perspective, 
with a different set of skills. And I'm already seeing, as I travel to each campus, a lot more optimism and a lot more confidence that together we can move the system forward. The the two things that we, we talked about, the administrative costs not dropping and then the uh, the transfer of credits not maybe being as uh, as smooth as it could be. Can we just take these it, it, mm-hmm. one by one? Talking about the transfer of credits, that's something that I think uh, people within the system have long kind of hoped for is a system that makes a little bit more sense. Why has that not gotten better? I think there never has been a an effort by leadership to, uh, to move this forward in an, in an expeditious way. And I think if you try to initiate change from top down, it usually is not successful. So right now we have in, embarked on a, uh, a pathway program that's driven by faculty. So if you involve the folks that actually have to teach and accept credits across the system as part of the process, then there's going to be ownership in that process. And so we, we're seeing now the approval of, a, of, of many pathways at institutions that then will come before the board, and then it'll make it easier for them, the students, to transfer back and forth. So that process you know, had been started, had been stopped, and with some uncertainty as to the leadership, there was really no um, concerted effort to move it forward. Now that I'm here, that's one of my priorities, and um, I've been speaking to that as I, as I go to the campuses as well, and actually listening to what the concerns are across, you know, faculty, faculty lines. Uh, when it comes to the, the cost of administration, it's not true that every time there's a consolidation that it means that costs go down, but often that is the result, and that's the, mm-hmm. that's the, the, the goal that was meant to be attained. How is it that that salaries for top administrators spiraled so out of control? How is it that we ended up in a place where we lost confidence in the people who were running the system because in part it seemed as though they were spending far too lavishly on themselves? And I can't speak to the motivation behind people that spent that kind of money. Um, All I can speak to is the fact that with me as a leader of the system, we will be looking to do things a lot more efficiently and creating a – Um, systems across the system, um, for example, maybe on charts of accounts, maybe on purchasing, that will allow us to, in fact, save money. Um, Coming from a place where I know the value of the dollar, being in the governor's office, I'm going to do things very, very differently. Um, You will not see exorbitant increases. You will not probably see any increases in administrative staff over over the foreseeable future. Um, we're looking to economize even the central office on, on how we do business. So I'm taking a very hard look at the numbers, but I'm also meeting with the folks on the campuses that actually do the work because I believe that you can only affect change from the bottom up and not from the top down. So we have always operated um, in a collaborative way, and that's the way that I intend to lead this system. And we'll be talking uh, in just a moment on some of the proposals that have been put on the table that have, as, as I said, drawn some harsh reaction from uh, some faculty members. If you want to join us, 860-275-7266. As we talk to Marco Jakin, who's the president of Connecticut's uh, State College and University's system uh, here on where we live. Uh, one thing that I know a lot of people talked about at the start of this consolidation uh, years ago was that we've essentially set up a two-tiered state university system. One is the CSU uh, campuses and the community colleges, and the other one is the University of Connecticut. And there's always been a a thought, 
at least amongst uh, some who teach at the state university system, that UConn is the favored child, that indeed UConn will have advantages that uh, the CSU system uh, will not get. Now that you've stepped out of the uh, administration of Governor Dan Malloy and you're sitting at the head of one of the two large university systems, do you see some merit to that? Do you think that there's something to be said for that? I think that UConn has been perceived that way because there hasn't been any sort of big or bold vision put forth for the system that I lead. And UConn is perceived to be the favorite child because they have come forward with Next Generation Connecticut. They've worked with Jackson Labs in Bioscience. They've done some really creative, bold initiatives. And my system has not done that as a system. So that's one of the things that I've tasked not only my team, but as I travel around to the campuses and meet with faculty, administrators, and students, I've tasked them to do. So my hope is to work through 2016 to stabilize the system and to come up with um, some proposals that are big and bold for the 2017 legislative session that I can bring to the governor. Hopefully he'll embrace them and we can, we can move them forward in the next biennium of the, of the budget process. I just think that if you don't have somebody at the top that thinks big, that thinks bold, that thinks out of the box, then you're always going to have this perception that UConn is the favorite child and the uh, my, the system I lead is the redheaded stepchild, so to speak. So let's talk about some of the proposals that are that are on the table now that uh, faculty have been complaining about and uh, some certainly with, with some reason, at least from, from their vantage point. Let me first ask, the proposals that are out there came out roughly concurrent to the time that you took over as, as president of the system. Were, were you involved at all in the crafting of this proposal that has been put forward before you stepped into this job? No, but let me explain how we got to where we are. And that is, there was a transition period. There were proposals that were put together that weren't fully drafted, that weren't fully vetted, but that captured some of the goals that had been put forward by the board in terms of achieving efficiencies and providing for more flexibility across the system, especially given the dwindling state resources that we will be receiving. And so I think there's been a lot of misinformation, a lot of miscommunication, and now we're at the point where um, we're at the table having very productive conversations, and then we have, you know, demonstrations and rhetoric that I'm perfectly willing to entertain. It's a democracy. It's free speech. Um, I'm not trying to, to um, temper anybody's ability to do those kinds of things. But I think, I think we're not looking to destroy, destroy public higher education. We're, we're not looking to minimize the contribution of faculty on the campuses. We have to achieve some savings, and we will look to do that together. The, the inference you made to, you know, the Scott Walker, you know, of Connecticut was at, at first laughable to me as a person that negotiated the, the historic 2011 agreement with CBAC. Um, I have very good relationships with labor leaders. I have very good relationships with line workers and um, don't intend to 
destroy the system and and was not was not hired to basically be the hatchet person. I know there's a lot of there's a lot of angst out there because people don't know me and they only know what they either read in comments on blogs or that I was the governor's chief of staff. Um, but I think I bring a skill set that will move the system forward. I spent two and a half hours on Saturday with faculty leaders of all of the CSU institutions, union leaders and faculty senate leaders, two and a half hours. Very good discussion, very hard questions. I asked them hard questions. They asked me hard questions. And we ended that conversation, I think, in a much better place than where it began. So I'm confident with you know, one-on-one conversations, group conversations. Um, I'm not going to negotiate this agreement in the press because I don't think that's a useful exercise. I, I do want to go through some of the proposals that have been put out there because I think with any negotiation, where each side starts is really important. And, yeah. and what the reaction from faculty was, uh, what, where it came from, was to some of the initial proposals that, that came out that are, in short, uh, more part-time staff teaching courses, more office hours for faculty, uh, personnel files subject to public release, available funding as one criteria to determine class sizes, elimination of research grants provided by the university, tenured staff could be transferred to another regional university without their consent or guarantees for returning tenure, longevity bonuses would be eliminated, children of unionized staff would no longer be able to attend graduate school uh, for free, counselors and librarians would no longer earn tenure. That list, I think, to a lot of faculty members sounds an awful lot like the savings, the changes are all coming on their backs. I- explain why that's not happening. A couple things here. First of all, some of the proposals that you read um, were are viewed in, in the way that, that you just described because of some drafting errors, right? So not all of that is what was actually put on the table. I'm, I'm not going to go through each specific one. What, what we're trying to do is to come up with a package that allows us to save some money, provides for more flexibility in terms of using our resources, doesn't demean by any stretch of the imagination the great work that the faculty does on the campuses. I mean, I I understand that um, as well as anybody else. But I'm also not going to have the entire burden for our our declining resources put on the back of students. I'm not going to look to raise tuition by exorbitant amounts. Um, so we need to figure out a way to do this together where, you know, there's, there's so, sort of shared sacrifice here. And so I think some of this, um, some of these proposals, um, you know, are meant as, as, a, as a starting point. And, you know, there's, there's you know, there's economic factors that we have to consider as, as, as we move forward. Nobody's talking about that yet. Um, are there going to be increases? Aren't are there going to be no increases? So, the, I mean, this is all on the table, and it really is unfortunate. Yeah, Let me just, yeah. It really is unfortunate that two things didn't happen, that the request that I made for a one-week extension so I could actually take a look at these proposals and make sure they were in their, in their best form um, was granted. And I, I understand now why that didn't happen. So, and, and that the, the fact that the proposals were put out there publicly, I think, um, does not provide or didn't provide us with the best start to the process. Now, we didn't share 
the AUP's proposals. We didn't put those on a website, and we're not going to do that. So I'm not going to try to get into any sort of um, guessing game as to why that happened. We're where we are. So I want to get rid of all the rhetoric. I want to sit down, as we are doing now, and have productive conversations about specific proposals and come up with a fair contract as expeditiously as possible. And let's get to some phone calls here. Uh, I think Liz is calling from New Britain. She's calling about one of the issues that that we talked about that was on the table. Liz, go ahead. You're on with Marco Jakian. Hi, Liz. Are you there? Now, maybe uh, we'll see if we can get Liz's uh, phone call back. I think that she was going to ask about this this question of uh, staff being transferred to other regional universities. One of the things that you said was part of the initial plan was to maintain the identity of these four schools. And if faculty are able to be shuffled between universities, one thing that that they might well say is, well, you're not keeping – the identity of these schools because the the schools really are the faculty in part. They're the teachers. They're the, they're the students. They're the education. And so I don't know if I necessarily want to move from Eastern to Western with this with this program. Plus, it doesn't allow faculty members to become a part of their community, their local community. If they can just be shuffled from place to place, it's very hard for them to embed in a New Britain or a Willimantic or a New Haven in the same way. Uh, what's your response to that? Well, First of all, I wouldn't use the term shuffle. That's not I – mean, I, that's, your, that's what your, sure. your term. But I would not use the term shuffle. I think the concept is to find a way that everybody can agree to that we can share these re- resources across the system. So if a program is not going to be offered at one institution because of low enrollment and we have another institution that's, that's offering it, why can't we have the conversation about faculty moving – to that institution, and so nothing, nothing is 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 set in stone in terms of saying, okay, John, tomorrow you're going to Willimantic. Um, those have to have be conversations. That has to make sense, right? We're not just going to do it to save money, but we're going to look to do it for programmatic reasons and to serve the greatest number of students. Well, could you just explain what you mean when you say have conversations? I mean, what does that mean practically? If we're talking about work rules, what does that mean? Have conversations. I mean, well, if, I mean, the, yeah. first of all, the proposal the proposal hasn't been fully, fully um, explored with, um, you know, with the with the union leader. So sure. I'm not going to go into the specifics of what I would intend it to mean. All, all I'm saying is that we need to have this conversation. We need to, in an era of dwindling resources, take a look at our resources and see how we can best use them. I'm not suggesting that we're going to take faculty in in you know, in wholesale numbers out of their community because I understand as I've traveled to each college uni- and university, I understand what the faculty, what the administration, what the presidents mean to their community. And so I think we need to balance the need to, you know, have that separate identity, you know, with the need to be realistic about <laughs> Our resources and our, our financial situation. What is the financial situation? I mean, what are the what is the resource gap that we're talking about here? Well, I mean, we're we're operating, you know, on on sort of bare bones right now. I mean, we we've been subject to rescissions. We haven't been exempt from rescissions, and I wouldn't expect just because I'm here as head of the system that we that we would be exempt in the future. So every time we have a cut, that means. Where you know you're not going to fill valuable positions, student services positions, that you're not going to be able to hire faculty, 
that you're that you might have to look at, you know, closing the library on certain days of the week. I mean, these are real cuts. These aren't just let's take money out of this big reserve we have because we don't and let's, you know, figure out a way to do it. So each cut we take is going to mean we're going to have to do more with less. And that's the reason I'm trying to provide some flexibility in a collective bargaining agreement. Has something changed in your perception since the days when you helped to negotiate this this consolidation about the way the system works? Now that you've been on this job for a little bit, is there something that's just sort of opened your eyes that has made you think, that's not really the way I thought it was as an outsider, if, if you get my point. Has there been anything that surprised you about the way the system works? No, I think I think what I've been what I've been most surprised by and happy to see is the collaboration now that actually is taking place between our two year and four year institutions. Um, the 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 CSU faculty um, on Saturday on Saturday said one of the things that they've enjoyed most about the consolidation is the collaboration with their colleagues at the community colleges. Um, I've been increasingly impressed by the ability of the community colleges to educate the students that they educate. Um, these are non-traditional students, students that couldn't thrive in maybe a Yukon or a private institution, single mothers, people were lifting out of poverty, people were, were giving opportunities for careers that otherwise would not have an opportunity to get anything but a minimum wage job. So I think I'm, I'm – Having been in higher education from 1988 to 1994, I know how it works, and I know some of the challenges in in changing people's um, perceptions and people's thought processes. But I haven't been particularly surprised. What I've been gratified with so far is the initial willingness of folks to listen to me, to get to know me, and to give me an opportunity to work with them um, to move the system forward. We're talking with Marco Jakian, who's the president of Connecticut State University and College System. We're going to come back and hopefully get to some more phone calls if our phone system is working right. You can call us at 860-275-7266. You can also find us online, wnpr.org slash where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. We're talking today with Marco Jakian, who's the president of Connecticut's State College and University System. We're talking about some new proposals that were put out uh, just a month and a half ago or so that might substantively change the relationship between faculty and the system. He, of course, was in the Malloy administration when the system was put together, and now he's at the head of it. We're going to take some of your questions on Twitter and Facebook at Where We Live. My apologies, our phone system is not working up to snuff right now, and that's not good. Uh, Hopefully we'll be able to get some phone calls on in just a little bit. Um, One of the things that you've said a few times during our conversation today is obviously you don't want to negotiate um, any sort of a contract uh, in the press and probably not on the radio this morning. Um, But I I guess I I will ask just about the process. I mean, what happens next in all this? You say you're in the midst of of, uh, productive conversations with union leadership Mm -hmm. uh, at the university system. I mean, what is the next step and what is the outcome of this? I mean, when do we see an actual plan that is put forward? Well, I think we're in the process of negotiating contracts with all of our higher education units, community colleges, administrators, staff, and the uh, faculty at the at the CSU system. So, you know, folks continue to sit across the table and, and exchange proposals and have conversations. Um, 
So I think we will be making some progress. The current contract expires uh, at the end of June of 2016. Any any contract, as you probably know, needs the approval of the General Assembly. And so we will be working to try to come up with an agreement in time for the next General Assembly to approve it. And so you will not see anything from me or from my team until we have a final agreement. One of the big concerns that I've been hearing from educators in the system is that we talk an awful lot about the economics of this and we talk an awful lot about the costs and the cost savings that are needed. But there's not enough conversation about the education, about the actual quality of the classroom education. I'm wondering if you can address that, because whenever we get into contract negotiations that talk about you know, where people are going to live or what school they're going to work at, at the end of the day, the thing that gets left out is, is often what the students get in the classroom. We may be trying to save students tuition hikes, but we want to make sure the students get the best possible education at these four universities and all the community colleges as well, right? Absolutely. I'm, I'm not looking to minimize the educational experience by any stretch of the imagination. I want to have a productive conversation about how do we deal with our resources and how do we best enhance that student experience. I understand that we don't want to have bigger classrooms. I understand we don't want to have, you know, students with an exorbitant amount of debt. I mean, I understand that we don't want, you know, students to be to be have their tuition increased by, you know, 6, 7 or 8%. Because some of these students can't, just can't afford it, and we're going to price students out of our system. And we educate mostly Connecticut students. So I'm very, very cognizant of that. And I think the discussion has to be around all of that, especially when you start to talk about tuition, especially when you start to talk about fees. So I'm not operating this conversation in a void. I'm having these conversations you know, with a recognition of what we have to do to enhance the student experience. And and what I'm finding as I go to all of the campuses is I'm learning more about what students need. I'm learning what students need on their campus, whether they're whether they have a disability or a mental health issue or whether they're a transgendered student and what their needs are. Um, what do we need to do to help people understand our financial aid system? And do we need more people at the, at, the, at the student service center to guide a student? Now, we're trying to do a lot with technology around helping students navigate through a system because, as you know, unlike me, most, most students today do, do most things with electronic devices. And so if we can give them that ability across the system, um, we'll be much better off. But, but I want to have the whole conversation. I'm just not about cutting costs. I'm about enhancing the student experience. It, it gets back a little bit to what I was asking about with the, the two-tiered system with the University of Connecticut and the state university system. UConn used to be the school that if you grew up in Connecticut, you would aspire to go to. You, 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 maybe you went to UConn and your child would go to UConn. Since UConn decided to, however many years ago, make a turn toward being this big international research university, it's much more competitive and there's a lot more students coming from all over the world to fill those slots, meaning that the CSU system and the community college system really is the place where Connecticut kids are probably going to go to get a state school education. Is that the way it should be? Well, I don't know if it's the way that it, 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 it should be. I remember when I grew up, UConn was the school that you applied to as your backup. Okay, it was, it was a school where if you couldn't get in anywhere else, but we're talking about the 
early 70s. So lots of things have changed since that point yes. in time. What, what, what I don't think we've done a good enough job with and is one of my priorities as I lead the system is actually marketing our system, marketing our institutions, rebranding how we do things. Because I don't want to have a system where people look and say, oh, you couldn't get into UConn. That's why you're going to X, Y, and Z institution. We do some amazing things on our campuses and educate an amazing number of students, you know, whether it be disabled, veterans, single moms. We actually produce you know, folks that go on and, and get master's and, and PhDs. And there's some great success stories. So I want to do a better job of telling that story to folks, and that's the, one of the top priorities on my list. Uh, again, we're working to solve our phone problem right now. But, uh, I didn't do it, John. You, I know. <laughs> it's, it's always great when we, ever have, we have somebody on who people want to call and talk to and the phones don't work, and my apologies mm. to everyone listening. But um, it, we getting, we're getting some tweets, including from Rebecca. What is your opinion about the academic rigor of transfer degrees that have only three to five classes in a major discipline? Well, you know, my opinion is that we have to do more to to understand how we create those pathways in a much more efficient way so that so that students aren't disadvantaged. I understand every faculty member has their own way of teaching and their own textbook and their own, um, you know, and their own discipline that they excel at. But what we haven't done a good enough job is at, at creating those pathways and providing incentives for students to stay in those pathways. So what we're doing right now is we're about to approve a number of pathways moving forward. And we're also looking to our four-year institution to say, what can you do to incent students to stay in and come to your institutions or give students the opportunity to transfer even to private institutions? I understand people don't like to talk about that, but I was down at Gateway and I was escorted to a meeting by a freshman who was transferring um, to the University of New Haven to study criminal justice. We should give those students those opportunities. It's about opportunities for the students, not about us. Uh, I'll ask a few things for you. We've talked a few times now about enrollment and whether or not uh, the enrollment numbers might mean that uh, a professor or a program goes from one school to the other. What is the issue with enrollment right now? I mean, do we just not see enough students going into the state university system to support what we have there? Well, I, I, you know, I think there's a couple things. I think you're seeing a decline in the number of high school graduates that are coming out of, you know, our um, our public education system here in Connecticut. So I think that's an issue in terms of the community colleges. When the when the unemployment is high, you see more people going back. Unemployment is lower, so there's not a number of, you know, the same number of folks in the system. But I also think that you that we don't account for bodies in the system. So, so you know, when we report um, enrollment figures, they're usually not based on, they're only based on credit numbers and not non-credit numbers. We have a whole host of students in our, in our system that are working on non-credit certificates that allow them to get jobs when they leave, manufacturing at Nuntuck. I mean, these great, great programs that are out there that don't account for actual bodies in seats. So we're doing a lot more... Um, uh, analysis on how we can more accurately report this to the public, understanding that we have federal guidelines we have to you know adhere to. But the beauty of me coming into the system is I ask, why can't we do things differently? Why do we need to do report things this way? And, and how can we together 
um, make sure that we are educating the most people we can, not only to get jobs, but there's nothing wrong with having a more educated citizenry. Mm. A uh, uh, last thing here. Glenn uh, writes into us, uh, please ask how the Board of Regents changes to faculty contracts would help the system's economic plan. And we've talked broadly about a lot of these things, but maybe you could just be specific in the proposals that the regents have on the table right now. Specifically, how would you save money uh, through these changes? How specifically would it help the long-term uh, financials of the state university system? Whenever you make changes to, you know, to, con- to contractual agreements and, and some of the benefits uh, and, and work rules that are provided, you're, you're ultimately going to save money, not only in the short term, but in the long term. But this isn't all about saving money. This is about making the most efficient use of the resources we have, especially in a time when we're not going to see more state funding. Do you, if you could turn things back, I mean, would this be the way that you'd start this uh, entire process? It, it's, it feels as though it's getting off to a little bit of a rocky start. I understand that you're sitting down with faculty members now, but it seems as though it, it kind of started from a place that wasn't the most collegial that it could have been. Absolutely. And I was, you know, and I'm, I'm not the person that likes to start in a non-collegial way. So, you know, there was a change in leadership, there was a transition, there was misunderstanding, there was miscommunication, um, you know, and, and sure, there's some very tough proposals there, but they were proposals. They're meant to be discussed. They're not meant to change the, the entire system of higher education or to dismantle it. I'm, I'm not Scott Walker. I'm not sent here um, or wasn't hired to to see the destruction of higher education. I'm here to build it up, to be its advocate, to be its voice, and to be its resource. Marco Jakian is president of the State uh, College and University System. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. It's been my pleasure. When we come back, we're going to hear from some students at CCSU who've been working on a semester-long project about race and inequality. We'll hear their voices coming up next where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, more than two dozen U.S. governors have now publicly opposed the resettlement of Syrian refugees, but not Connecticut Governor Dan Malloy. On our next episode, we'll take a closer look at the ongoing refugee crisis and Connecticut's role in resettling those displaced by civil war. That's tomorrow's conversation, Where We Live. I hope you can join us. Racism and income inequality in America are on the minds of young people concerned that the rising wealth gap will harm their chance for a good life. This semester, students at Central Connecticut State University examined inequality through the lens of race. Semester-long project will culminate in an event called Bridging the Gap, a dream deferred that will feature student work. And also the keynote speaker, Tim Wise, who's the author of White Like Me, Shaming the Poor, Praising the Rich, and Sacrificing the Future of America. The event happens on Thursday, December 10th at 5 p.m. in the Constitution Room on Memorial Hall on the campus of CCSU. We're going to put more information on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. Today, I'm joined by three students from CCSU who've been involved in this program. Uh, Jackson Ryu. Do I have your last name right, Jackson? Rio. It's all right. Rio. I I want to make sure I I got it at least somewhat right. Uh, Joins us. Uh, He's from CCSU. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Uh, Lindsey Grant is also a student at CCSU. Lindsey, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. And and Signa Lam- Lambertson is a student as well and a volunteer for Feed the Need. Signa, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I- I'll ask you first, and maybe you can all talk a little bit about this project. I mean, w- what exactly was the goal that you had personally and the goal for your group in, in some of the ideas that you were talking about? 
So uh, Susan Campbell came up with the um, idea of having all of us write for a blog. And it gives us, it forces us to really focus our attention on what we're writing. We have to, we started off by having to write 200 words or less, which was very difficult actually. And then um, she upped it to 300 words or less so that we could really um, hone in what we're trying to say about particular topics that we are um, discussing that she gives us topics to to write about. And and tell us, Lindsay, about the the topic that you were writing about and some of the ideas that were maybe kicking around in in the classes as you were talking through these things. Well, I actually wasn't part of the blog. I um I, in my studio production class, Jackson was actually in it too. We um we did a variety show about just the wage gap in general and not, not only how it affects race. And we did come little commercials in between about how about like you know with an ad, a PSA, um, a news report. There's a skit, um, in a music video, all like you know all with the topic of the wage gap. And what are the things, Jackson, about the wage gap that, that you and the other students are most concerned about? Uh, just looking at how the wage gap is currently the highest it is since um, 1928. We all know what happened in 1929, obviously. So we just looked at why, how we got here, um, what we can do to fix it, and just stuff like that. Well, I, I, I had you bring in a, a piece that you wrote uh, for this project, and maybe you can just uh, set it up for us and then, and then read for us. Uh, yeah, um, I, the title of it is Tragedy of the Commons because we, ta- um, we were talking about the 19th century British writer in economics who was inter- interested in population control. Um, you know, he looked at that and looked at uh, – he pretty much was against the poor and stuff because he lived in London at the time and um, was well, more upper class and whatnot. Well, well, why don't you read your piece for us? All right, yeah, I'll read a little bit from it. Um, <clears throat> what would William Forster Lloyd say about the world today? The 19th century British writer in economics was particularly interested in population control. In 1833, Lloyd introduced a scenario that would later be known as the tragedy of the commons. Imagine a flourishing green grazing area that is available to all the members of a town. There would be plenty of room for the members to bring a sufficient number of cattle to the green. That is, if everyone acted in the best interest of the town. Unfortunately, greed takes over and a small group of farmers exploit the green. The green is eventually overgrazed and destroyed, thus the tragedy of the commons. Today, the farmers are corporations such as Nike and Apple. The green is the number of job opportunities American corporations should be offering their citizens. Instead, Nike offers $200 shoes made by female workers who earn around 50 cents an hour in foreign countries. Apple is no better. A 2014 report from BBC exposes the vast mistreatment Chinese workers faced. These practices are hurting Americans, too. America lost 5.1 million jobs from 2001 to 2011 due to outsourcing, according to U.S. News and World Report. This only deepens the divide between the rich and the poor. Outsourcing is not the only reason for the income divide, but it's no coincidence that America's income inequality is at a boiling point. In fact, the divide is the highest it's been since 1928. So uh, let me ask you a couple questions about this, and I'm, I'm sure uh, you're, you're a professor and your professors like Susan Campbell, who's our friend here and who's uh, written for WNPR and uh, helped us with projects in the past, I'm sure would push back on some of these things too. Like you, you, you call out uh, big corporations like Nike and Apple that are certainly outsourcing their jobs to foreign countries where people are not making 
a whole lot of money and maybe uh, working in really terrible conditions. That said, if you looked around any classroom at CCSU, you're probably going to see an awful lot of kids wearing Nikes, and you're probably going to see an awful lot of people who are texting with their friends on their iPhones. Aren't we, like, the problem? Yes, you could say that. Um, It's something we don't really think about. I mean, how often do you go to a store and you think about, oh, where was this shirt made or where were these shoes made? But, I mean, do we really have a choice, though, because with all the – with how everything's such a big – corporations and everything, globalization and all that, I mean, there's really no choice. That's mainstream America, what we buy and everything. So you could say, yes, the consumers are a problem, too. I want to, Lindsay, could you pick up on that a little bit and, and, and tell me about some of the ideas that you were thinking about as you were doing your multimedia project around this? I mean, obviously, there are some questions that probably students haven't really had to grapple with a whole lot, including how much they're complicit in this entire world in which there's so much income inequality. There's a lot. Yeah. We're at a, as Jackson said, we're at a boiling point. Yeah. But who's who? I mean, I'm not going to say whose fault is it, but but how much responsibility do we bear? Uh, college students, uh, other people in, in America who are, you know, maybe working hard and struggling, but but living pretty good lives compared to people around the world. I mean, compared, we're not struggling as much. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm wondering, Signa. I know that you you wrote a piece that you wanted to to share with us a little bit, and maybe you can tell me about what uh, what you wrote and uh, tell me uh, about it a bit before you read. So, what I wrote about, um, I called it "Does It Matter," and I tried to make a culmination of a poem in a culmination of many of the topics that we. Um, d- are asked to write about um, income inequality, racism, Black Lives Matter, poverty, homelessness, um, all of the things that I tried to kind of do a, a synopsis in one, in just one writing. So, so why don't you read for us? Sure. Um, again, I called it Does It Matter? Does it matter that mothers are afraid to send their children out to play? Does it matter that we treat another shooting as just another day? Does it matter that we turn our heads away as someone is being beaten or stolen away? Does it matter whether we know them or care enough to draw attention when others are being too rough? Does it matter that the cold weather will be blowing in soon and some people are trying to figure out what underpass to call home? Does it matter that these people try their best not to steal but figure out another way to get their children a meal? Does it matter that these same children with their parents trying their best, are expected to study, stay focused, and especially pass the test. Does it matter that the guy who sits in the alley, you know the one, the weird one, he makes weird noises and calls you Pally. Tonight starts the weekend and everything's closed, so he'll make his way to the emergency room because it's all he knows. His demons chase him all day and all night. He's lonely, he's afraid, And, by the way, he's losing his sight. Does it matter that there are people out there who just want to help? They really do care. Does it matter that money and funding of programs to help are all too often getting shuffled or stuck in red tape? It's no longer time to sit back and get angry. Find it in yourself to ask, does it matter? Uh, we're visiting with students from CCSU who are part of a, a project that's been going on this semester. It's called Bridging the Gap, A Dream Deferred. They've got an event coming up on December 10th. Um, 
Tell me about some of the, the conversations around these issues that you've had in class and how it's influenced maybe your thinking on race inequality in America. Exactly. So um, Susan Campbell has introduced us to um, several guest speakers who have come in to, to speak with us as well as her providing um, an absolute plethora of information. We have a lot of reading to do before before we do any writing. She she sends us fifteen or twenty uh, uh, articles that we need to be up to speed on um, by the time we get to class. And then she has had some of um, some of some national leaders. Um, for instance, um, Bishop Selders came in to speak with us about um, Black Lives Matter and how he gets involved. How being just one person actually does make a difference and how he can uh involve the 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 people of the of our nation and just individuals and then we've had statistical ex- experts come in um to speak with us um the Connecticut Center to um end homelessness um a gentleman came in and spoke with us who talked about how statistics actually do matter in how they are presented and that one one side the left side or the right side depending on which side you're on can can skew the way that it's viewed so that they can perpetuate their message um, uh, well, I, I wanted to ask uh, Lindsay and Jackson. Uh, Jackson, I'll ask you first. Have any of your ideas changed over the course of this semester? Uh, definitely, yeah, because I think um, particularly with uh, Susan Campbell's class, we went to a homeless shelter and whatnot. It really changes your perception of how they got there and whatnot because I'm certainly not wealthy. My family's not wealthy, but I've never spent a day homeless. I've always had a home and everything. But you go there and see what they went through and whatnot, and it almost puts you in their shoes for a little bit, and you could actually see and get a better understanding of the story. Lindsay, how about you? Have any of your ideas on these issues changed at all this semester? Definitely. Tell me about that. Well, um, it just it was kind. It's just eye opening just to see the numbers. And do the personal stories though uh, help to to change your mind at all? Yes, definitely. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering as as you head toward this uh, the big culmination of this uh, project, um, Signe, this is happening in the midst of a big conversation on college campuses yes. about a lot of these same issues. Yes. Um, and on every college campus, Yale, University of Missouri, many others, it's been playing out slightly differently. Has there been a feeling during this semester as you've been doing this project and these protests have been going on to college campuses around the country that something specifically like this is happening at CCSU? Is there a different conversation happening amongst the student population at Central Connecticut State University? I think it's really interesting the way that the entire campus seems to be pulling together, even though the different classes that I'm taking are truly very different. Their approaches are very similar in how we're being asked to think about what we're reading, what we're writing, pertain it to what is happening in the world, and how can we individually make our own changes so that we have a voice but uh, and do stand up for the things that we want to stand up for, but make it as productive as we can make it. So, as productive as we can make it. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I think I think blogging is something that it's such it's such a easy way to reach so many people. And I think that the comments that we've been receiving, I, I think Jackson, you, you'd agree that some of the comments that we've been reach, 
that we've been getting online just from the blog from a very short amount of time has really told us that people are seeing our, our work. And we're students. So, you know, it's, I hate to use the word just, but we are just students. Does, does that sound about right to you that you feel as though you're actually making some sort of an impact by putting some of your words and thoughts out into the world? Yeah, absolutely. Um, even though we're not na- like a national uh, television channel or whatever, you get the comments and you get feedback. And that's one of the, um, the better things with social media nowadays. You, you see who you're reaching and what your work did for them or if they use your information to help them. I, I, a last thing that I'll ask you is this this question of free speech and expression is something that's come up an awful lot on college campuses, too. It's that there's an awful lot that students are concerned about in the world, but there's a fear amongst some that maybe expressing yourself fully isn't something that's going to make everyone comfortable. And if people don't feel safe to express themselves, that maybe that's a bit of an issue. Is it something that you've run into a little bit, the, the notion that there's a kind of a censorship on college campuses about what you can and cannot say? Um, absolutely. You turn on the media, you see there's been college protests all the time lately. Um, at Central Connecticut, I haven't really seen any protests this year, but I think there is a fine line. Obviously, if racism and all that is going on, that is something you need to address. But at the same time, you see some of like, are you going to cancel uh, an event from somebody who's visiting your campus and you don't agree with certain beliefs they have that at the same time, I think is the exact opposite of the First Amendment. I mean, we have freedom of speech and whatnot. So it's both sides. Uh, Jackson Rial is Rio. a... Rio. Rio. Yeah. Ah, I knew I'd get it wrong. It's again. all right. It's good to meet you. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Thanks also to Lindsey Grant and Signa Lambertson. Uh, they're all students at Central Connecticut State University taking part in this project called Bridging the Gap, A Dream Deferred. It's happening uh, Thursday, December 10th. We'll put more information on our website, wnpr.org, slash where we live. Thanks to our friend Susan Campbell. Um, also, thanks to Betsy Kaplan, who produced our show with the help from uh, Lydia Brown, Tucker Ives, and Josh Nalea, Kyle Wolf, and Heather Brandon. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Welcome back, Katie. This is Where We Live. <laughs>